Section 9 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 9. The War Cloud Deepens and Bursts. The inaugural address was received with general satisfaction in the loyal states, including the border states, in the main. But, of course, in these latter states, as in the South, there were thousands of scheming minds ready to misconstrue and misinterpret any inaugural address which the new president might chance to present. Every effort was, therefore, made to spread through the border states the idea that the inaugural was intended as a covert declaration of war upon the southern states, and many of these efforts were more or less successful in the accomplishment of their object. The president's first act was to construct his cabinet by the appointment of William H. Seward of New York, Secretary of State. Salmon P. Chase, of Ohio, Secretary of the Treasury. Simon Cameron, of Pennsylvania, Secretary of War. Gideon Wells, of Connecticut, Secretary of the Navy. Caleb B. Smith, of Indiana, Secretary of the Interior. Montgomery Blair, of Maryland, Postmaster General. And Edward Bates, of Missouri, Attorney General. The Senate having confirmed all these nominations, the gentlemen immediately entered upon the discharge of their duties. The South had been busily preparing for war. The North still longed for peace, and had made no preparation whatever. Indeed, Mr. Buchanan's policy seems to have been to leave the ship of state a wreck in his successor's hands. Mr. Lincoln found all departments of the government not only disorganized, but the mischievous sentiment had been studiously disseminated that the general government had no power to enforce the laws. Hence the very officers of the land had, to a great degree, ceased to respect laws which they had not the power to compel the people to obey. The world never witnessed so wretched and disgraceful a close to any man's term of power as in the case of James Buchanan. On the 12th of March, two gentlemen, Messrs. John Forsyth of Alabama and Crawford of Georgia, styling themselves commissioners from the Southern Confederacy, appeared at Washington with a view to negotiate for an adjustment of all questions between the two governments, and, for this purpose, requesting an interview with the Secretary of State, which was very properly declined, on the ground that it, quote, could not be admitted that the states referred to had, in law or fact, withdrawn from the Federal Union, or that they could do so in any other manner than with the consent and concert of the people of the United States, to be given through a national convention 
to be assembled in conformity with the provisions of the Constitution of the United States. End of quote. This communication was framed on the 15th of March. But, with the consent of the commissioners themselves, was withheld until April 8th, when it was delivered. Its receipt and character, when made known at Charleston, were made the occasion of precipitating the tragedy of Sumter, which, it was thought, could not fail to unite all the southern people as one man against the north. General Beauregard, the Confederate commander at Charleston, was, accordingly, instructed to demand the surrender of Fort Sumter, around which a cordon of rebel batteries had been gradually drawn so completely as to make compulsion, in case of a refusal, merely a matter of time. General Beauregard accordingly made his demand on the 11th of April, but Major Anderson, commanding the fort, at once replied that his, quote, sense of honor and his obligations to his government prevented his compliance, end of quote. Further correspondence took place, but the unwavering, loyal soldier could not be shaken in his purpose to defend his trust, or yielded up in ruins. It is not necessary to dwell upon the cowardly capture of Anderson and his handful of men by the combined batteries and multiplied legions of South Carolina and her sisters in the plot of treason. On the 12th of April, fire was opened, and Sumter was bombarded to its fall. The formal surrender and evacuation taking place on Sunday morning, the 14th. The blow was at last struck, the deed accomplished. The patiently proffered olive branch of the North and of the Union was trampled in the dust by traitor feet. War was not only proclaimed, insisted upon by the South, but actually had commenced. The sword was not only drawn menacingly, but its bright blade was crimson with parricidal blood. What was left for the North? Simply what followed? War. War for the laws, for the Constitution, for the preservation of our nationality. War for honor, peace, and glory. The country had calmly borne everything up to this time. Insult, injury, monstrous treachery. But now the cup was full to overflowing. The fratricidal hand was red with a brother's blood, and the North, springing to arms, as a single hero, accepted the dread challenge of war, and flung away the scabbard, a signal of absolute victory or certain death. In this crisis, fortunate indeed for the Union, for liberty, and for humanity, was the North in having for a leader that child of the people, with spirit tempered to iron endurance in the great battle of life, Abraham Lincoln. On the day after the evacuation of Sumter appeared that famous call for 75,000 men to suppress the rebellion of southern slaveholders which created such unbounded enthusiasm throughout the country. 
every state still loyal responded promptly and with profusion. In a brief time after the issue of the proclamation, the Patriot legions of the Union were pouring toward the capital. But dark days were included in that brief time for an attack upon Washington, either from Virginia or Maryland, was hourly apprehended, and the small force of volunteers which General Scott was enabled to raise from the district was but a frail protection. In this trying period, the cheerfulness, courage, and trust of our chief magistrate never for one moment deserted him. And, shortly after, the gallant New York 7th reached the capital, bringing sunshine by its presence. The Massachusetts Six followed, the first regiment in the galaxy of glory, in having shed blood for its country, having fought its way through the pro-slavery mobs of Baltimore. The murderous assault on our volunteers at Baltimore was felt as an outrage throughout the loyal states, the Baltimore and Maryland authorities pretended that their people were uncontrollable, and Governor Hicks and Mayor Brown united in a letter to the president, requesting that no more troops should pass through Maryland. In his reply, through Secretary Seward, Mr. Lincoln reproached these unpatriotic officials in the following terms. The President cannot but remember that there has been a time in the history of our country when a General of the American Union, with forces designed for the defense of its capital, was not unwelcome anywhere in the state of Maryland, and certainly not at Annapolis, then, as now, the capital of that patriotic state, and then, also, one of the capitals of the Union. It was, however, subsequently agreed between General Scott and the Maryland authorities that troops should not, for the present, be marched through Baltimore, but forwarded by way of Annapolis. On the 19th of April, Mr. Lincoln issued his proclamation, blockading the ports of seceded states. These, and several subsequent orders, were the steps by which the government sought to defend itself. For the tone of the Southern press, as well as the declarations of rebel officials, plainly indicated that it was their purpose to push northward the war they had inaugurated at Charleston. Their chieftain, Jefferson Davis, had intimated as much long previous, and Leroy Pope Walker, the Confederate Secretary of War, hearing that the attack on Sumter had commenced, made a speech, in which he had said that, while, quote, no man could tell where the war would end, he would prophesy that the flag which now flaunts the breeze here, meaning the rebel rag, would float over the dome of the old capital at Washington before the 1st of May, end of quote. And, quote, might eventually float over Faneuil Hall itself. End of quote. The South already had pushed 20,000 men into Virginia, and President Lincoln was, therefore, fully justified in limiting his early military operations to the defense of Washington. 
Virginia was carried out of the Union about this time by fraud, terrorism, and violence, just as in the case of her seceded sisters. Other slave states followed her example, and hence, on the 27th of April, the blockade of rebel ports was extended, by proclamation, to Virginia and North Carolina. On the 3rd of May, more troops were called out, and recruits ordered to be raised for the regular army and navy. It would be idle to attempt a succinct narration, within the limits of this volume, of the multitude of orders, proclamations, etc., which followed each other in rapid succession after the commencement of hostilities. We must confine our record to a synopsis, if we would keep our subject of biography in view. The new administration early devoted itself to define the position taken with reference to foreign powers. Mr. Adams, our minister to London, received instructions to govern his course which were at once prudent and manly. It was the determination of the British government, before the arrival of Minister Adams, to act in concert with France in a recognition of the slaveholding rebels as a belligerent power. Against this project, Mr. Adams was directed to make a decided protest. June 15th, the British and French ministers at Washington requested an interview with Mr. Seward in order to communicate certain instructions that they had received from their respective governments. But, upon learning of the nature of these instructions, which probably looked to a consummation for the purpose above intimated, the Secretary of State declined to hear the instructions read, or even to receive official notice of them. This was the Chief Magistrate's foreign policy from the commencement of the war, to utterly, decisively, resolutely refuse anything like an intermeddling in our domestic troubles by the despots of Europe. End of section 9.